Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's Game Forge uh, in the Hunt podcast. It's today's your host, Mark Sweeney. I'm here by myself today because Brian Bailey and everybody else uh, is doing other things. And we we're kind of um, branching off and doing some of our own solo uh, podcasts so that we can get more out there. Um, in the past, you know, to get everybody else together, it sometimes uh, takes a while. And so we don't get as many episodes out there. So we're branching off by ourselves. And we will see how this goes. Uh, the nice thing about it is I get to choose any topic I want. Uh, so it's really kind of whatever mood hits me at the moment. And today, not shockingly, but um, I think we're going to talk about some green reading things just because last week was Pebble Beach. And there's always some things that come up during the Pebble Beach broadcast, which irritate the living daylights out of me. Um, so we'll kind of talk about that and get into a little bit deeper in some of those issues. Uh, it will not always be green reading. I know that's something I do a lot of, but it's certainly not uh, the only thing on my mind. And in fact, it's probably on my mind less than a lot of other things that I do. Uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about and doing performance analysis and, and uh, database work and really kind of digging into performance metrics and understanding those better. So uh, next podcast, I'm sure it'll be something more along those lines and it will be about green reading. But today you get to hear about green reading in general and obviously Aimpoint falls into that. But uh, I think I'll try to stick a little bit more maybe to the, the fundamentals of green reading so we can kind of get rid of some of our bad concepts. One of the things that uh, Brian and I always do is try to make sure that your concepts are correct because if your concepts are wrong, um, you're you're behind the ball already, and it's pretty hard to hit good techniques and and good practice and good performance if you start off with bad concepts. So we always start with that. Make sure we lay the groundwork that you what you think you understand is actually true or accurate um, to the best of our knowledge, at least at the moment. Because sometimes that does change over time. Believe it or not, I've certainly had many times uh, in the last twenty years or so doing Aimpoint where there's something that I thought worked well, and then you test it for three or four months and you realize it breaks down in certain situations and therefore it didn't work as well as you hoped and you go find another solution. Um, it's hard to do sometimes because once you kind of commit to something publicly, it's hard to come back and say, well, we found a better way to do it because that worked well in most cases, but in certain cases, it just breaks down and fails. So anyway, given that set, having said that, um, we are going to talk about Pebble Beach because every year on the broadcast, somebody comes on and says, well, I don't care about Aimpoint. You've got to know where the ocean is. Otherwise, you can't putt at Pebble Beach. And that endlessly bothers me, not because they're talking about Aimpoint. They, couldn't, they, they could not be talking about Aimpoint at all. They could just say, you can only putt at Pebble Beach if you know, know where the ocean is. And that drives me as crazy as people saying, you've got to know where Ray's Creek is, or you have to know where the mountains is, or you have to know where Indio is. Um, and you know, we've talked about this topic over and over again, but we're going to talk about it again today, uh, because that's what I'm in the mood for. So unfortunately you get to, you're stuck with whatever I want to talk about. Um, Justin Rose won this year at Pebble Beach, longtime aim pointer, very, um, uh, methodical aim point player. Obviously, if you know aim point where the mountains or rivers or ocean is, has zero to do with the aim point read. And I mean, nothing whatsoever. I've had a few people say, okay, I know you, you know, how you do your basic aim point process, but you know, if you really had to putt for money and it was really important and you're a tour event trying to win, what would you add to that? And the, the obvious answer is nothing. There's nothing you would add to it. The, the aim point process is designed to give you the information you need for a putt. 
So the question is what information you need for a putt. You need to know how much side tilt there is um, as a matter of percentage, and you need to know relatively the speed of the putt, whether that's green speed or uphill, downhill. Uh, that can also be affected by grain, but you need to know the relative speed of the putt or take your best estimate. But the number one thing you need to know is just the amount of side tilt. If you know that uh, and you get it in the correct area of the putt, then 95% of the work is already done. And all you're doing is fine tuning with your, your speed adjustment, which is how much arm bend you have. The nice thing is any putts outside of about six feet, you can just use your fingers with any point that automatically scales for the length of the putt. So you don't really need to know the length of the putt, although there are some tiny little tweaks you can do is if, if the putt's shorter or longer. Um, but again, 95% of the work is done by just getting your side tilt in the correct area of the putt. Now, why does it not matter where the Pacific Ocean is? Well, let's back up a step. You know, what, what factors control break? Gravity obviously can, can, is the number one factor that controls break. Um, you cannot turn off gravity. If, you know, if you talk to a good a physicist who knows what they're talking about, they'll tell you if, you if gravity ceased to exist, then space and time would cease to exist simultaneously. Gravity, space, and time are all integral, integrally connected. You cannot turn one off without affecting the other. So there is no way that you are changing the effect of gravity on a golf ball. And it doesn't matter whether there's a mountain or a lake or a river. It makes no difference. The effect of gravity is relatively constant across the earth. Um, I know some people will say, well, it's different in the mountains. Yes, it's, it, it, it does change a little bit depending on the, uh, the density of the surrounding terrain and where you are. But it's so minimal that it's not uh, doesn't actually change the effect of a golf ball rolling across a golf green. So it's it's negligible for our purposes. Um, what people always talk about the ocean is, you know, there's a couple different theories. One is there's the mysterious ocean pole, which is BS. Obviously, uh, the ocean does not uh, exert any effect on a golf ball. It just doesn't. Uh, if anything, the ocean has lower gravity than the mountains. So it, in theory, if that works true, the mountains would actually attract the golf ball more than the than an ocean would because he has low relatively lower gravity um so that's just nonsense and everybody talks about it and everybody thinks they know what they're saying but the reality is is if you could find a place on the earth where the standard laws of gravity did not apply i guarantee you nasa would be parked there and camped out there 24 7 to figure it out uh, and it certainly doesn't just happen on a golf course so you always get people saying, well, yeah, but that doesn't apply on a golf course. It's, you know, okay. <laughs> it's just so we're not going to go too deep into that because that's just obviously nonsense. The second thing, which actually could potentially have some validity as well, you need to know where the ocean is because everything tilts toward the ocean. Um, the problem with that is, unfortunately, everything does not tilt towards the ocean. Uh, greens tilt wherever the architect wants them to tilt. And that could be towards the ocean. It could be away from the ocean. It could be sideways from the ocean. It could be a 30 degree angle the other direction, uphill from the ocean, wherever they want to tilt the green. So it really doesn't matter where the ocean is because the days where everything tilted towards a low point are long gone. Uh, any modern green design has is, is got you know multiple low points and they tilt it wherever the heck they want to tilt it. They're out there with a bulldozer and they're moving dirt and they're making an interesting shape. Um, they also are very good at creating optical illusions and they know how to create optical illusions. So especially when you have uh, an ocean, which we would call low horizon behind the green. So one of the optical illusions is called, uh, the, it has to do with the height of the visible horizon. So when you have a 
lake or an ocean behind the green, which we'll call a low horizon, it makes your brain tilt the green up away from it. So it will look flatter than it really is, or it'll look tilt, it will look tilted away from the low horizon. If you have a high horizon, which you'd have out in the mountains, where you have, um, let's say, a, a hill or a mountain behind the green, it actually flips it the other direction. It actually fl flips it down. So it makes it look um, flatter than it actually is towards the mountain. So the height of the visible horizon has a huge effect. Architects know this. They can easily design greens that can screw with your eyes and screw with your brain so that you just cannot see the slope correctly. If you can't see the slope correctly, you're you're going to have a hard time. Uh, historic green reading is to stand behind the ball, stand on the other side of the ball, try to visibly get your side tilt, right? So everybody knows either overtly or subconsciously, you need to get the amount of side tilt through a putt to estimate the break. Well, you can do it visually. That's fine. You can stand behind the ball. You can look behind the hole. You can go to different angles and try to visually pick up your side tilt. Or you can do what we do, which is get it using your sense of feel, which in my opinion is dramatically, dramatically more accurate than your eyes because your eyes are very, very easy to trick. So if you use your eyes only and you go to places like the ocean or the desert or the mountains or anywhere like that, you're going to have a very uh, inconsistent green reading and you're going to get fooled and you're going to see the ball do, do things that it's, quote, not supposed to do. But if you actually put your feet on it and feel it, or if you really want to be scientific, if you went out and put a level down, the ball will do what the level says. Uh, and I found this, you know, in any situation, including all the places where people say that there's mountain and lake and river effects, you know, we've gone out and put levels down and said, well, the level says the ball should break like this and you roll the ball and it breaks like that. So it, it does what it's supposed to do. So gravity is your primary function. If you understand the tilt, gravity is going to control almost all that. Your other two things that can affect break would be wind, which is an accelerant, which can add break, decrease or decrease break. Um, that is certainly an issue to deal with, especially if it's up over 10 miles an hour, you have to make adjustments. Uh, if you make a read and you do not factor in wind and it's 10 miles an hour bigger, you are going to miss, right? Because the, that, that is enough wind uh, for the ball to be affected by it, where it's gravity plus wind. Now, when I say 10 miles an hour, I mean 10 miles an hour at the flag, not up 30 feet in the air, which is, I think, where standard Weather service will tell you the wind speed up in the air is 30 feet or 30 yards or something like that. But it's up in the air where the ball is flying, not, not down where the flag is. Um, 10 miles an hour, the flag is only about four to five miles an hour at the ball itself. So again, as you get lower and lower and lower, the wind has a smaller and smaller uh, speed. And therefore, it's, it has a smaller and smaller effect on your putt. But anyway, wind, wind absolutely must be uh, factored in at times, not always, but at times. Um, and then the last thing is grain. There's there's issue. There are situations where grain will affect your break. But again, that is um, you always do your standard read and then adjust for wind or grain. Uh, more often than not, grain is going to be a negative adjustment, meaning you're going to straighten your putt from grain. Historically, and most people you talk to say, well, you got to add for grain, add, 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 add. Well, that's actually not true. You actually more often than not have to subtract break for grain. So depending on the break direction and the grain direction and the strength of the grain, it can be a pretty, pretty surprising adjustment. Um, that is certainly the situation where you think you have a dead straight putt and it falls with the grain one way or the other. Or if you have a putt that's supposed to break a little bit one way and ends up breaking a little bit the other way, that's typically a grain issue. So 
if you know how to adjust for it, it's not a big deal. But out at Pebble Beach, and when you're out dealing with uh, grasses other than Bermuda, grain is really not a, a big function out there. So, so Pebble Beach is going to be standard standard slope and wind adjustment if it's windy. Um, having said all that, you know, there's people who are just forever will say BS. Uh, the ocean matters, the race creek matters, um, and uh, what I've learned over time, there's not even there's no point in even trying to argue with them because they just they just don't care. They're burnt. They're burned into what they feel uh, that, that what they think uh, they may have had experiences where a ball su broke surprisingly um, towards a certain direction. And they say, well, that's where the creek is. So therefore, it must be a creek effect. Um, but it's just not true. So so if we think about the third hole of Augusta. It has a low horizon on the left side and behind it. So it, it slopes dead right to left. It's very narrow. It's actually a very steep green. But when you walk up to it, because it's very low on the left side, your brain flips the green the other direction a little bit. So it looks much flatter than it is. So if you get up and you're hitting across the slope at number three at Augusta, it visually doesn't look like a ton of break. And then you hit it and it breaks off the chart to the left. Um, people say, well, the creek's to the left. Well, the creek actually isn't to the left. The creek is behind you. <laughs> but they'll say it must be the creek that's making that happen. It's not the creek. It's just it's an obstacle illusion. It's a lot steeper than you think. Uh, if you actually measure the green, you'd go, oh, wow, there's a lot more slope there than it looks like. And the ball's behaving like it should on that much slope. So that's kind of my my uh, spiel on that. You know, it's been I've been fighting this battle for God since probably 2000 five, uh, almost 20 years. And, you know, I hear less of it than I used to. And it used to bother me. It doesn't bother me anymore. But it's just like, if, if you guys listening really want to be a good green rear, and I've said this a lot of times in the past, if you really want to be a good greener, what you have to accept is what's the, the laws that are actually controlling break. And the laws that are controlling break are, are gravity and slope and to some degree wind. And this is a small degree grain also. But if you really just do slope only, you're so far ahead of the game. Um, you, you it, it would change your entire golf career if you just said, okay, I'm going to forget all the nonsense and just say, I'm going to focus on slope. And if I understand slope, I can understand break. No big deal. So there's that. Um, this week is coming up, uh, waste management out in the desert. You're going to hear the same stuff out there where you've got mountains to one direction and, you know, downtown Phoenix, another direction. And they're going to say, well, that ball should have broken to the left because that's where downtown is, but it broke to the right. Huh? How weird. Um, well, no, the, the slope is to the right the ball broke to the right. And that's just what the balls, the balls do what they're supposed to do. They're, they, they're not aware of downtowns. They're not aware of mountains. They're not all aware of lakes and bodies of water. They have no concept and no senses to know where that stuff is. Uh, there's no different effect of gravity from that. That's changing. That's changing it. So the ball does what it's supposed to do almost without fail. So our job as good putters and good green readers, especially if you play the competitive level, is to understand uh, that concept and start with the correct concept. And then once you once you burn that into your brain, then you can go out and say, okay, well, what is the process that will get me the numbers I need and get me the information I need? And that's where that's where aim point kicks in. Obviously, you can try to do it with your eyes or via other methods, but you have to understand the concept first and then apply a method that's that's gives you the accuracy you need. Uh, that being said, you know, I, I took a look at Justin Rose's um, putting numbers for the last year, basically. Um, 
regardless of what greens he's on or the types of greens or whether it's mountain or, 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 or a parkland golf course, he's putting, he's converting about 30 to 35% of his mid range putts. Uh, you would think that if you get to a place like Pebble beach, putting would go down um, because it's got the, these other factors such as the ocean, but it, it didn't, it, it doesn't go down. Um, you, at Augusta putting gets harder because the green speeds are so fast and because the slopes are steeper. So that's definitely going to affect the overall make percentage because anytime you increase slope and speed it, it increases the level of difficulty and requires a higher level of accuracy, both with your read and your speed control. So if you look at any, any tournaments that are known for fast greens or steep greens, you're going to see putting numbers degrade. Um, but if you just kind of keep with your same process and have a good solid process and read your greens the way they're supposed to be read, uh, similar to getting a, a yardage, you know, you have a, everybody's got a yardage uh, method where they figure out what the yards is and they make an adjustment for elevation or air density or whatever. Um, green rings the same, just the same deal. So we'll keep hearing that until we got to get to Florida and then people stop talking about it during the Florida swing, but they'll talk about it on the West Coast. They'll talk about it in Hawaii and they'll talk about it. I guess Hawaii's technically, eh, maybe it's the West Coast. I don't know. It's out there. Um, they'll talk about it in the mountains, and then you won't hear a peep about it on the East Coast. And you won't hear a peep about it in Florida, and you won't hear a peep about it. Um, you'll hear about it in Augusta, that's for sure. Um, but most golf, most places, you won't hear anything about it. So it's a funny thing. Entertaining, entertaining for sure. All right, let's move on to the next topic. All right. Next topic was I was um, listening to the No Laying Up podcast with Max Homa, who was obviously uh, um, using Aimpoint and one one of a number of times with Aimpoint, and seems to be a big fan of Aimpoint. Um, the historic critique for Aimpoint was it takes too long, quote too long. Um, and you know, if you go back ten years or longer, when we use the charts, the charts could be a little slow if you weren't used to them because you were kind of triangulating on a bunch of numbers, a bunch of factors trying to get a good number. Uh, but the express read eliminates all that. And the express read has been out now since the end of 2013. Holy smokes, uh, nine years it's been out. Um, this is the 10th year we're starting on right now, I think. Yeah, it's the 10th year we're starting on. Um, if you do if you do express correctly, it's, it's faster than any visual method. I, I've watched uh, Aimpoint people and put them split screen next to each other on the same hole, same similar putt with somebody who's walking around looking all over. And without fail, the guy walking around looking all over is taking longer the majority of the time. Um, so, I, so I don't buy that. And I've gone out and time people and I've, I've done analysis of this and it, it's, it's that, that part just isn't true. So the bigger question is, should it be legal? And that, that was a question that was brought up on this. And one train of thought is, well, you should only have to be able to use your eyes reading a putt, and you shouldn't be able to, to feel the slope. Um, and I, I don't understand that argument because you cannot, you cannot stop people from feeling slope. If you're, if you're standing behind your ball, set up with the ball, you're feeling slope. If you're walking halfway down your line like a lot of players do, um, you know, and swing their putter back and forth over the line, they're feeling slope. There's just no way to stop doing that, you know, and, and, you know, the next question is, well, why would you say you're only limited to visual senses playing golf? 
Uh, does that mean when you're getting yardages, you can't step off distances from sprinkler heads? Does that mean that you've got to visually identify your yardage and that's it? Um, I, I, that's, that's not the way the rules work right now. It's certainly not the way the game is played right now. So that, that argument doesn't really hold any water for me either. Um, I would say as long as somebody's keeping up with their time and they're not using a measuring device, let them do what they want to do. You know, I don't, I don't think it should be like NASCAR where you say you're stuck reading with your eyes and that's the end of it. Uh, we certainly, you know, one thing that I always find interesting is that senior champion tour players, you would think with all the experience they have that they would be the best green readers on the planet. But what you actually see with a lot of them is their green reading actually degrades as they get older. And my theory is because your eyesight changes dramatically as you get older. And if you're a visual green reader and your eyes are changing every 10 years, and they do change every 10 years pretty dramatically sometimes, um, it's going to affect your green reading, I would think. And they they definitely, I've worked with a lot of champions tour players that say, I used to be a great green reader, green reader, and now I just don't know what's going on. I just can't tell what the ball is doing and what the ball is supposed to be doing. Well, that's kind of what you're stuck with if you make people only use their eyes to perceive slope. So I don't think you can, uh, I don't think you can limit that. I don't think you can tell people you're not allowed to feel slope. Um, I, I did agree with Max when he said, I can't believe they ever allow green books. Uh, I was shocked when, you know, when they, when they first allowed green books back in, I think 2015, I put some green books out there for a test and I asked the tour first, I said, can you, you know, is it okay if I give these to players and see what their reaction was? And I was fully expecting them to say, no way in hell. What are you thinking? Those are laser scans of greens. That's out of bounds. It's contrary to the rules, blah, blah, blah. And they went, yeah, fine. No problem. And I almost fell over when they said that. Um, and so I gave them out to players and they pretty much all said they were too difficult and, and too many, too much going on. They couldn't think straight and they couldn't maintain their flow and blah, 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 blah. Um, so it was interesting, interesting to see, you know, not too many years later that they're pervasive pretty much everywhere on tour and every, in every, in every tour, including college and junior golf. Um, and now they've tried to put that well, now they've, at least the tours made it illegal. So they let that cat out of the bag and it took a long time took, you know, 10 years for them to almost 10 years for them to put it back in the bag. Um, that I do agree with. I, I don't agree. You should have digital laser scans accurate to two millimeters to help you perceive slope. I think, I think, but I think anything um, in your senses that you can use, you should be allowed to use. And if that's feel or that's vision, that's kind of your only two options there. Uh, why wouldn't you allow it? Just give everybody a time limit and say, you've got 40 seconds to figure it out and then make your putt. Boom, leave them alone. Um, anyway, that's my take on it. A lot of people agree. A lot of people do not agree and that's fine. Um, but ultimately it's up to, you know, the governing bodies to decide how the game is going to be played. And we'll be interested to see if they actually um, make any changes or not. All right. The, the last thing I'm going to go over here is just a um, some thoughts on measuring yourself and your accuracy of your putting. So, you know, when I first started teaching, I get a lot of players that say, oh, I'm a good putter. I'm a good putter. I don't need any of this stuff. Well, that's really an objective opinion. Uh, it should be an objective. Sorry. That's a subjective opinion rather than objective fact. So subjective opinion is I feel good about my putting. I can meet my, my mates when I'm out playing. So let's just call me a good putter um, or my friends tell me I'm a good putter versus an objective fact is depending on your level of golf, how many putts 
must you make? So if you're playing D1 college golf and you want to be a, want to be a top 20 player, what's your conversion rates got to have to be? If you want to play on tour, what does your conversion rate have to be on the LPGA, the PGA Tour, European Tour, whatever it is, we know those numbers. You know, So for instance, if you want to play PGA Tour, your mid-range conversion rate, meaning you know, nine to 20 feet, needs to be about 30%. And it just does. And most college players are not even sniffing 30%. But if you want to stay on tour, it really needs to be there. Um, why does it need to be there? Because you need to make a ton of bogey. <laughs> you need to make a ton of birdies and you're only going to hit 12 or 13, maybe 14 greens on a great day. Uh, I think the number one guy on tour for greens and regulations is about 13 and a half. So there's only so many greens you're going to hit and you've got to make 24 birdies to win. Um, how are you going to make 24 birdies on 13 greens a day if you're not making a ton of mid-range putts? So People, people argue a lot and they're like, well, that number is too high. You know, we're, nobody can make 30%. Well, I have to tell you the PGA Tour average at that distance is 30%. The average, if you look at winners, there's 50 to 75% in that range for the week. You know, not for the round, not for the front nine, for the week. So the winners every, every week are making just a ton of mid-range putts. Um, so my question would be this, let's say you're playing... Do you, you want to play D1 college golf? You know, you're, you really want your mid-range make percentage to be 25%. Go out and test yourself. Go out and hit 10 or 15 putts between 10 and 20 feet and see if you can make a core of them. See if you can do that multiple times. See if you can do that in a tournament on average. Uh, most players' answer is going to be no, frankly. Um, but if you want to play, if you really want to be a good putter and you want to play at the highest levels, you have to putt at that level. I don't care if you like it or not, if you'd agree with it or not, you can look at the numbers. We can show you millions of rounds um, and, and the numbers, the numbers are valid. And it's a, it's a big number. It's a lot more, it's a lot more made putts than people realize at the tour level, especially if you're coming off junior golf, junior golf, they're converting and maybe 15% and then college is 15 to 25%. And then tour is 25 to 35, almost 40% for the number one guy in tour is going to be high 30 percentages on that. Um, it just gets better and better as you keep playing. So rather than calling yourself good or bad or putter and using a subjective um, definition, just go out and test yourself. You know, how, what kind of golf do you want to play? We'll tell you how many putts you need to make. Go out and test yourself. See if you can do it. See if you can do it consistently over and over and over again over the course of weeks, the course of months. Um, and that'll tell you. Now, if you can't, so we, we'd call that just doing assessment, assessing, assessing yourself. Now, if you cannot do that, so let's say you got to convert at 30% or better and you can't do it. You need to figure out why. It might be your green reading. It might not be your green reading. It might be your start line. Probably not though. It's, or it might be speed, which is a very high probability. Um, so as you go through your assessments, you've got to figure out what's preventing you from hitting your numbers. Uh, same thing would work as if with greens regulation. Let's say you want to play on tour. You better be hitting at least 12 greens. If you're not hitting 12 and 12 greens, you're pushing it. But if you're hitting less than 12 greens, good luck. You know, you're just, you know, good, good luck staying on tour less than 12 greens. Um, why? Because you need the average under par to stay on tour. And usually even par happens around about 12 greens. So if you're below 12 greens and you're trying to average under par, you better put the spots off the ball, or you better have the most amazing, amazing wedge game in the world where you're just not giving bogeys back. So there's certain requirements to play at certain levels. And there's a little bit of flexibility between greens and putting and scrambling but not as much as you think, um, not nearly as much as you think. So run an assessment rather than saying I'm good or bad or okay putter, just say, 
I'm hitting my numbers or I'm not hitting my numbers. I need to perform a certain level. Uh, I need to make a certain number of putts or hit a certain number of greens to, to play at a certain level. Am I doing that or not? Just objectively, am I doing it or not? Um, and if you're not, you got to diagnose why and work on your skills until you are. Uh, your skills might be green reading, might be line, might be speed, might be mental. Mental is a big piece of it with putting. Um, I've seen lots of players who, when they're relaxed, putt unbelievable, but put them under stress and they just collapse. And that's that's the mental side of training that needs to be done also. Can you perform when you're tired, pissed off, frustrated, um, want to go home, cold, hot, whatever it is, can you still perform at the same level given a lot of discomfort, whether it's mental or physical discomfort? That's something that's hard to train on the putting green, but it's something that we try to simulate. Um, tired, you can simulate. Stress, you can simulate. Hot and cold, eh, probably don't do that a whole lot, but but you certainly could if you wanted to. Um, that's the only way to really know whether you can really stand up under pressure or not. So go out and just, you know, be creative about your training and not just let me hit a bunch of three footers in, or let me just see if I can start it online on a mat for 30 minutes in a row, go out and say, I need to make 30% of these while I'm, when I'm exhausted, boom, go, good luck. Can you do it or not? Um, there's lots of cool drills you can do for that. Especially if you have a partner, you can really do fatigue drills. I just did one last week, uh, with an LPGA player. That was loads of fun. Um, but it'll, it'll wear you out. It'll absolutely wear you out. And suddenly your speed will start changing. Your process can start changing your make percentage changes. And the idea is, can you keep your make percentage where you need, even when that's going on? Anyway, good way, good way to assess yourself. Good way to train. Um, I hope that was, uh, interesting for you because a lot of people really do not train putting very well, even at high levels of golf. Sometimes their putting training is all technical, um, they probably might not do enough of it, or if they do it, they do too much technique and not enough performance drills and, and um, stress drills. So that's something that we definitely like to focus on with, with high-level players. Anyway, I will be back. I don't know when I'm due to be back by myself, but I'll be back for, um, for, for my solo podcast, I think once a month, maybe something like that, and the rest will be with Brian or other guests. If you have questions you want me to address, I would love to hear them. I would love to get your feedback and I will I will address them for sure. Uh, next time I will not be talking about green reading, I don't think at all. So um, anything at all that that you would like to hear me, me address or do some research on, uh, any questions you have, whether it's performance or ball striking or what different tours do, let me know. Send me a message. You can uh, DM us through Instagram at uh, mygame4, at mygameforge, or I'm at, at Aimpoint Golf is my Instagram uh, account. Uh, feel free to reach out there. I'd love to hear from you all. Otherwise, I'm just stuck making up stuff myself to talk about. And whatever mood strikes me is what we're going to talk about. So have fun. Thank you for listening, everybody. And we will be revisiting with you all in the future.